1: Welcome to the New Books of Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with the author of Clinton's Grand Strategy, U.S. Foreign Policy in a Post-Cold War World, published by Bloomsbury in 2015. The author of the book is James Boyes, and I had the pleasure to talk to him today. The interview is broken up into two parts because of a small technical problem about halfway through. Shouldn't cause a problem with you learning about this really interesting book. I hope you enjoy Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure of talking to James Boyes, who is the author of "Clinton's Grand Strategy: U.S. Foreign Policy in a Post Cold War War World." James, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Good to speak to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I've been looking forward to talking about this book that I have some uh, some real interest in. Before we get to it, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, You're not in the U.S. right now, so tell us physically where you are, so we can understand some of the noise, and then, and then also uh, uh, what you do in, in, in addition to writing this interesting book.
0: Well, that's no problem at all. Um, it's a delight to be able to speak with you. I'm sitting here today on a lovely summer's day in London town. Uh, I am an associate professor at Richmond University, which is a, a liberal arts college here in London. I'm also a, a senior visiting research fellow at King's College London. Uh, I have the uh, the great privilege of uh, having briefed uh, the UK Foreign Affairs Committee on US-UK relations pretty recently. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the UK trying to keep myself busy. You know, I've got a great interest in US-UK uh, relations upon the, uh, the history of the Clinton presidency. I was fortunate enough to have met Bill Clinton when he was president. And um, and those sort of interests very much, you know, form the focus of a lot of my work but looks at how it is that individuals make decisions, the role of the individual in the decision-making process, and the, uh, the great power of the American presidency. So I'm very happy to be talking to you today. I look forward to your questions, and I hope that uh, uh, your listeners uh, find this of great interest.
1: Well, and I feel like I'm in London. I feel like we are, <laughs> we are there with you. Um, so let's talk about this interesting book. Um, so, so Bill Clinton sort of bursts onto the national stage uh, in the U.S. with a reputation as a domestic policy wonk but thin on foreign policy credentials. I wonder how accurate that assessment was of him prior to his run for, for the presidency. Let, let's talk a little bit of uh, sort of pre-1992 about the, the foreign policy credentials of this former governor in the 1980s and, and so. So tell us about this this person we we sort of know.
0: Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he is critiqued uh, for having a lack of foreign policy credentials. One of my favorite quotes is from Pat Buchanan, who suggested that Bill Clinton's only foreign policy experience was having had breakfast once at the International House of Pancakes, uh, right. which it's a great quote. Uh, now, whether you agree with that or not, um, I have to say, Pat Buchanan isn't too far removed in terms of uh, Bill Clinton's job specific requirements for the presidency. Um, the irony, of course, is that if you were to look at a resume for an American president and say, well, you know, who was the best qualified on paper to be a foreign policy president? Uh, that was George H.W. Bush. Um, you know, the guy who'd been head of the CIA, uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, representative to China, et etc. et cetera. Uh, Who, of course, Bill Clinton labeled the foreign policy president during the 92 campaign. Bill Clinton's um, sole foreign policy experience if we can call it that prior to becoming President of the United States was very much within an academic sphere you know he'd been to Georgetown he'd worked on the staff uh, of Senator Fulbright he'd studied here in the United Kingdom uh, as a Rhodes Scholar Um, the point my book makes is this he had not uh, because of the nature of the office he held had any need or requirement to uh, immerse himself in foreign policy as an office holder because guess what Governor of Arkansas doesn't really require that, but this was someone who was interested. Um, He has a, you know, what you could call a a once-in-a-generational mind, I think, a very inquisitive nature individual, someone to whom the foreign was not foreign, someone who was interested to learn about what other parts of the world did and how they implemented policy. Some of that was about domestic issues, but by necessity, because he was a governor of a state in the United States in the 1980s and early 90s, he was having to engage with foreign countries, their leaders, their um, their businesses, to try and bring business to Arkansas and to export business from Arkansas. So, you know, this is one of the reasons that he brings a really early understanding of what becomes known as globalization to the presidency because of his experience within the domestic stroke foreign policy field coming out of Little Rock, Arkansas. So, you know, this is something I very much deal with within the first chapter or two about how it is that this. Domestically focused pre, uh, candidate for the presidency has an, in, an innate interest uh, in things that are foreign, without being part of what could be seen as the Eastern establishment foreign policy intelligentsia of the United States historically.
1: So let's talk a little bit about some uh, just a definition because uh, there's a sure. sort of a, a key here. And so in your title and throughout the book, you refer to grand strategy. Before we get to what Bill Clinton's grand strategy. Uh, was or, or still is. Um, what, what is grand strategy exactly? Uh, where does this phrase uh, come from? It's a good
0: question. Uh, and indeed, the first chapter uh, I put together uh, addresses very much this, this idea of what is strategy, what is grand strategy? You know, um, it's a concept which uh, is constantly emerging. I mean, how brands is doing some interesting work on this at the moment, for example. Um, you know, you can go back to Sun Tzu, um, uh, these ideas that, you know, back in, That kind of era, it was all about warfare. Um, You know, uh, Lawrence Freeman at King's does a lot of work on issues to do with strategy and the idea that the very concept itself is constantly emerging. I I refer to grand strategy in this era as rather than just foreign policy because what I want to talk about here is, is the idea that we're not just talking about classic sort of pinstripe suited individuals from the Northeast who were devising U.S. foreign policy, but... The way in which every element of national power is brought to bear in the benefit of the national interest. Uh, The way in which politics, economics, social, cultural, all this national canon, if you will, of power is brought to bear both hard and soft power, to reference Joe Nye, in the betterment of the national interest. So that's how I'm looking at national uh, interest and grand strategy And the book, therefore, very much looks at how Bill Clinton attempts to use both um, economic power, national security uh, and America's uh, soft skills, effectively, and soft power to um, increase its role on the world stage in an era uh, after the Cold War, before the war on terror, when America's very remit in the world is being called into question.
1: So let's, let's look to that period where Bill Clinton has first asked to articulate the, sort of the beginnings of his grand strategy and at least the beginnings of his, some of his views on foreign policy. Would you take us to Georgetown and, and this, uh, the kind of one of the culminating events of his campaign on the foreign policy side? What, what did he say at Georgetown and, and, and why did it come to define uh, what we understand as his vision for the foreign policy realm?
0: Well, I'm really glad you asked me that, because what I've tried to do with the book is take the reader through the the presidential odyssey of Bill Clinton, starting with his announcement address in Little Rock, but vitally with his speech in October 1991 at Georgetown University, when, with the help of people like Sandy Berger and uh, and Tony Lake, he articulates a foreign policy vision as part of what he refers to as his uh, New Covenant strategy. Um, a concept which, if I'm honest, doesn't ever really take off, but his foreign policy espoused at that point um, encapsulates the three central elements of what becomes President Clinton's uh, national security strategy document. So you can trace uh, the origins of Clinton's uh, approach to foreign policy and grand strategy from the very first days of his candidacy in 1991 right through to the last day of his presidency in January 2001. Um, And what he espouses is a dedication to uh, a maintenance of U.S. national security. In other words, he's not going to basically be a weak Democrat, weak on defense, weak on national security. He's going to talk about uh, Anthony Lake's concept of democratic promotion, of trying to uh, reverse the, um, the domino effect effectively across the world, so that where command authorities and command economies move out, freedom and democracy can move in. And also... Promotion of prosperity, um, trying to open up markets, and again, uh, very much in the same sort of parts of the world, central eastern europe, and one of the vital things that Clinton espouses on that day is the idea that we 've got to get rid of this division between this distinction, sorry between domestic and foreign uh, we 've got to break that wall down, and this is something that Clinton articulates constantly throughout his campaign, so that when people like John Lewis Gaddis, for example, someone who I usually have great respect for but critiques Bill Clinton for having an ad hoc approach to policy. I would respectfully dis- disagree and say you can trace through Clinton's campaign from the 1991 through his last day in the office a commitment to three key elements as a core element of national security, uh, democratic promotion, and prosperity promotion, which form his grand strategy uh, and which I think therefore uh, really um, uh, contradicts uh, Garris' uh, assessment uh, of this idea of an ad hoc approach to policy.
1: So because it's of personal interest to me, what happened during the presidential uh, transition of 1992-1993? Bill Clinton has been elected, and now he's got a lot of choices to make. So I'm particularly interested in this time period and, and, and how Warren Christopher came to be Clinton's choice for the State Department.
0: One of the great problems that Bill Clinton has as president-elect is the lack of bench strength within the Democratic Party. Um, he had campaigned as a new Democrat, and yet, if you look at the people who he transitions into power uh, in his first term, they are all, I hate to say it, all Democrats. Indeed, D.D. Myers, uh, who takes a, a huge role in terms of being press secretary uh, in that first um, period in the White House, asks the unanswerable question when she asks, what do we do when people get asked about, you know, surely these are a bunch of Carter-era retreads. Um, he brings in people like uh, Sandy Berger, Warren Christopher, Tony Lake, all these people who've worked for Jimmy Carter, the very president that Bill Clinton had tried to ignore and dismiss on the campaign trail, presenting himself not as a new Jimmy Carter, but as a new Jack Kennedy. And yet, when he comes to staff his administration, he's forced to hire people who've got institutional memory, who've served in the executive branch before. People who've worked for Lyndon Johnson are really now too old or are no longer alive, and therefore the only ca- um, uh, administration you can reach back to is Jimmy Carter. Uh, Tony Lake had been brought in by Sandy Berger on the campaign trail to offer advice uh, on the speeches uh, we discussed uh, in October in 1991, for example. Clinton initially offers the National Security Advisor's job to Sandy Berger. Berger does the unimaginable in Washington and basically says, Mr. President-elect, I'm not qualified for this job yet. The guy you want is uh, Tony Lake. But Lake had not basically been involved in the transition period at all. He had basically gone back to his farm in Massachusetts. He was teaching at Mount Holyoke, and he wasn't expecting to land the gig uh, as National Security Advisor. Warren Christopher, as you rightly say, uh, is a very interesting choice. He had played no part uh, during the campaign. He wasn't advising Clinton as a Democratic uh, candidate. The most he had done was introduce Clinton at a speech in California uh, at a time when Clinton's uh, uh, standing in the polls was, uh, was not quite what it could have been. Um, so the, the idea that Warren Christopher comes in, uh, someone who had expected and hoped to be named as Secretary of State um, in the latter stages of Jimmy Carter's presidency is, a, is an interesting choice. So, Warren Christopher was a fascinating choice. Christopher, of course, had not uh, campaigned with, the pres- with President-elect Clinton at any point. He would not advised him on the campaign trail. The most he had done was to introduce him at a talk in California when Clinton's uh, ratings were not really quite where the governor had wanted them to be. A lot of people have raised questions about why C- Christopher was brought on board. Christopher was probably the most senior ranking member of the Democratic Party's foreign policy establishment who had not served at full secretary level beforehand. He'd hoped to be named as Secretary of State under uh, uh, Jimmy Carter in the last uh, year of that administration and was disappointed when he hadn't been. But I think that Clinton's choice of Christopher speaks to what I can only suggest was Bill Clinton's lack of ultimate confidence within the foreign policy sphere – He chose someone who was far from being an assertive individual. Everybody knew that Warren Christopher wanted to be Secretary of State, but no one could quite say why or what he wanted to do in that job. He didn't bring any great ideological kudos with him or commitment to anything. Um, He certainly was no Henry Kissinger. Indeed, Madeleine Albright referred to him as a lawyer's lawyer, and I don't think that was a compliment.
1: We're back after a short break to uh, get our audio correct, but we're back with James Boyes. And, um, we're still talking about his really interesting, really interesting book. So, so James, let's, let's continue talking about, uh, the, um, some of the ideas behind the, uh, the Clinton foreign policy. And the book that you write is, is a lot about big ideas. And I was very curious how important you feel the Council of Foreign Relations is, uh, to Clinton's foreign policy team and to his foreign policy leg- legacy. They, they show up so frequently in the book. Tell us about CFR and and how they're connected to Clinton. It's a good question. And it's funny. I've done a lot of interviews about the book
0: over the last couple of months. And no one's asked me about that. So it's 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 great to have a unique question. Um, CFR. Well, one of the things that was interesting about this was that the Clinton team, when they came in, tried to talk very much about, about diversity and talking about having a really diverse range of Uh, Of gender and ethnicity and age ranges and something that someone pointed out very very quickly was actually you know what something that everybody on this team has got in common is almost exclusively membership of uh, the council of foreign relations and past experience with the carter administration Um, so there's no doubt that cfr was is an organization that was of great importance i think to the members of the Clinton team coming in. Um, It was an organization that Clinton had been introduced to uh, and uh, made uh, uh, formalized his membership through uh, Madeleine Albright. Um, Clinton, I think, um, she's taken the question at a bit of a tangent, but it is relevant. Clinton, of course, was this great outsider. He was not of Washington. He was not from Washington. And I think he'd used the, the CFR, as a way to try and get in with that really key sort of Georgetown um, sort of, you know, uh, social network that people like Harriman was involved in. She of course had helped introduce him to certain members of that, uh, uh, that sort of inner sanctum of the democratic foreign policy team. Um, people like Madeleine Albright of course had been courted Um So he was very, very good. You know, Clinton's soft skills are legendary. And I think he realized that getting membership of CFR and courting uh, those members of of that organization who were more inclined to uh, a democratic uh, principle, effectively. And, you know, it come from a democratic background was going to be very important in terms of offering um, a degree of kudos and credibility to any incoming administration by saying, look, you know i am from arkansas but i have the stamp of approval from the sort of the the eastern establishment as personified by the council of foreign relations and um i think it's something which far too little attention has been put upon and uh, and i'm delighted that you that you note that it's something which i raise in the book
1: yeah i think that the point you raise about diversity i think is so important because in certain ways cfr represents the exact opposite in terms of sort of thinking in terms of ideological um uh, shared thought
0: uh, wait, wait, so, just, just so two very quickly there's something that yeah, fascinating please. there was that Hillary Clinton in particular talked about something called the egg test, which I mentioned, um, which i 'm not sure how many people are familiar with, and the egg test was an acronym for ethnicity, gender, and geography. The idea being that if you want to be in the Clinton cabinet, you have to pass the egg test you know so there 's going to be an ethnicity test, a gender test, a geography test, an attempt to try to get. A diverse group of people, but you know, as, as I was talking about a moment or two ago, fundamentally, is that ever achieved, or is there far too much of, well, great, you know, sure, they tick the egg box tick, but they are all still members of the Council of Foreign Relations, and someone like madeline Albright would be a particularly, um, I think, precedent example of that. You know, one of the reasons that she becomes sex stat in the second term. It's arguably not that she's the most qualified, but there's a degree to which, you know, Hillary Clinton as first lady is making it very, very clear what she wants within the administration. And what she wants is, you know, the first female secretary of state. And there are other people uh, who were as well qualified. And you could certainly look at the work that Richard Holbrook had done uh, at the Dayton uh, conference in his in the first term. You know, could he should he have been rewarded with a far greater position in the second term of the administration, would he have made a better Secretary of State? Maybe, but I think you can see in Madeleine Albright the start of a series of appointments to the Secretary of State's position in which the government of the United States is making an assertion about where it wants to be and putting people into that role who might not be the best qualified diplomat uh, or Secretary of State, but they are saying something about how they want the United States to be seen on the world stage.
1: This is a nice transition from the so the planning of the uh, Clinton foreign policy team and Clinton foreign policy establishment to the actual practice of so let's move to some of those um th- those crises that define the Clinton White House. Sure. I wonder for you um, what is the the major foreign policy crisis that that defines the Clinton White House? Wh- what is the what's the event or series of events that that really um, uh, clarifies for you? what their foreign policy stance actually uh, was.
0: Well, there's kind of two points to your question. The first question was, what's the fundamental crisis? And the fundamental crisis is Somalia, in my opinion. Um, I think that the administration come in and they are very uh, gung-ho and interested in adopting fundamentally what Madeleine Albright refers to as assertive multilateralism, the idea that America will lead, it will lead a multilateral group of nations moving forward. Um, now, this gets taken to the extreme, and the critics say, "Well, what Clinton wants to do is to farm out foreign policy to the United Nations." I don't buy that. I don't think Clinton wants or believes that it's feasible to subcontract foreign policy to the UN. But it's certainly true that the foreign policy team within both the campaign and the administration feel. Um, That they are effectively a subcomponent of the overall administration, Um, and you know people like Tony Lake have said as much. Um, So what happens is, of course, that they come in, they inherit the mission in Somalia, and again, one of the problems with looking back at history is the way that history is retold and mistold. People all too often forget that the troops. And the Marines weren't put into Somalia by Clinton. He didn't just forget about them and let them rot in Mogadishu. This was an inherited mission. Bush had put them in as uh, an outgoing president. Clinton had inherited that mission, had brought that deployment down from somewhere between twenty-five, twenty-eight thousand 28,000 uh, troops to about 4,000 support facility effectively by the, the late spring of, of 1993, very much in accordance with the overall UN mission and when you end up with the incident which Ridley Scott recorded in Black Hawk Down, it's a real wake-up call because the problem you have fundamentally is that this is an administration that has sought office, secured office, ostensibly on a domestic policy agenda and does not want, doesn't wish and cannot afford to expand political capital on unnecessary foreign policy deployments which are at odds with its stated policies and which it only inherited because of deployment that it had been in place when it came to power. Um, the focus of the administration in that first 12, 18 months was healthcare, not what was going on in Mogadishu. But what it caused was a, a, a necessary uh, reconsideration about the degree to which The president himself could be detached from the day-to-day involvement of U.S. foreign policy and, by extension, grand strategy. And there was, because of the deaths of the U.S. troops uh, and the U.S. forces in uh, Somalia, a, a reconfiguring, I think, about the role of multilateralism, the degree to which the U.S. could rely upon the U.N. as its organization of choice moving forward and it's at this point that I take strong argument with those critics of George W. Bush uh, who say well you know it was W that destroys the relationship with the UN, it's W who calls for American unilateralism and I say you've got to recognize that you can take that argument back not to 9-11 but to the events after the Black Hawk Down incident because the administration realized that a multilateral approach cannot necessarily be guaranteed to be successful, and that the motto of the administration is multilateral when possible, unilateral when necessary it 's American national interest that must take precedent, which is what most administrations would think uh, this administration puts it in black and white in its annual national security strategy documents, and from the the deaths of those Americans in Somalia onwards you see a shift away from the UN towards an embrace of NATO because at NATO, the United States uh, has a far greater ability to direct the course of events and actions through that organization than it does at the United Nations, where of course it is but one uh, of five nations that has a veto so that when you see the events unfolding in Rwanda and particularly in Bosnia um, uh, in which both deployments or non-deployments, the U.S. comes under great criticism. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the, um, the practicalities of trying to get anything done in the United Nations when you have uh, a very vehement uh, Russia uh, basically saying, Niet, to doing anything that would be uh, seen as putting the Serbs uh, in a bad light uh, in uh, in the former Yugoslavia, so I think that the turning point very much is Somalia uh, in terms of where it is that there needs to be a recalibration of where the administration will focus and really getting Bill Clinton to wake up and say, you know what, I've got to take a far stronger interest in foreign policy, and I think he does so from that point onwards.
1: Now, if this is a turning point and also kind of a um, reconsideration of the uh, strategy. Uh, I wonder if the other parts of the strategy that you described earlier, which is the focus on economic policy, I wonder where that plays out most clearly. Um,
0: I think the, the the most important thing, and what I try to stress in the book, is that all too often everybody wants to look at a single entity within a foreign policy. And say, well, you know, the the, the focus was was uh, Democracy promotion, or it was prosperity promotion, or it was national security, and 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 then there are other people who say, you know, there wasn't a grand strategy. Well, what I say is that what you see developed on the campaign and in office is a trinity of 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 concepts, and you need to recognise them all together. And the reason, arguably, that prosperity promotion, as I term it, the idea of putting economics at the heart of Clinton's grand strategy plays into a series of, of concepts, most notably of which is this. It's where Clinton is most at home. He is not a foreign policy strategist. We discussed earlier the fact that his, his remit as governor of Arkansas does not require um, a strong intellectual capacity to grasp foreign policy. But he's very much at home with economics. And he gets it and he understands the overall concept of geoeconomics. So, putting economics at the heart of grand strategy allows for the president to bring his own predilections and expertise, if we can call it that, into grand strategy. It also gears up for blending domestic with foreign policy. You know, Clinton, both in his campaign speeches and his inaugural, talks about, you know, needing to end the division between foreign and and uh, domestic policy and one of the reasons for this in terms of economics is of course Clinton comes into office on the back of a campaign that talks famously about it's the economy stupid if Clinton's going to get reelected in 96 he needs to fix the economy and one of the ways to fix the economy is to create more markets overseas for American goods and services so You don't just fix the domestic economy. You open up the international community for American trade. And, you know, Clinton recognizes there isn't the the funding available to initiate a Marshall plan for the for the post-Cold War era. But what you can do is be far more pragmatic, which is to say where the command economies of the former Soviet Union retract. And I'm thinking in particular here with regard to Central and Eastern Europe then those those areas those nations are going to basically open up uh and we can flood those new territories with american goods and services both uh in terms of exports uh and in terms of businesses um and that i think is something which clinton's overall strategy has been far too um uh, overlooked and uh, and given far too little credit for and all I can tell you is that growing up in in Britain during that time period, um, this whole country, you know, Britain has become in many ways the twenty the fifty first state um, because you know you walk around the streets of London and you know there is there is Americana on every street corner, and that wasn't the case uh, twenty twenty five years ago before Clinton. And that's just here in in London, let alone across Central and Eastern Europe, which become uh, great new marketplaces for Clinton's. Grand strategy of prosperity promotion.
1: Now the, the book is very interesting and, and sort of takes us back in time to this this place. What what's next for you? Um, are you working on the an equivalent book for uh, Hillary Clinton's run for office? Are you uh, continuing along this line? What what else can we uh, look forward to from you? So what I want to do next
0: um, is I'm I'm looking at the the book I've just written is is quite broad. You know, it, it was deliberately written as a a counterpoint to those people like Gaddis who say, well, there really wasn't a grand strategy and it was ad hoc. And my point is, no, 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 there was, and here it is. What I'm looking and working on now is taking um, uh, a a far greater insight into a specific element of Bill Clinton's foreign policy, and that is to do with uh, his policy towards uh, political violence and counterterrorism. uh, on 9-11, there were various members, particularly, it must be said, of the Republican Party who were trying desperately to blame Bill Clinton for allowing 9-11 to happen. And, uh, you know, again, you know, trying to take a similar approach to this, you know, uh, to say, well, well, hang about a second. That's a very serious allegation. Let's go back and look. Uh, what is the record? What's the policies? So uh, my next uh, project, which I'm uh, I'm engaging in at the moment looks very much at the history of political violence, uh, both within the United States and as reflected upon in the United States. I was very lucky um, several years ago, I was a visiting fellow at the University of North Dakota's uh, Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies. And at that point, I began a project which uh, uh, has very much evolved to this, the idea of uh, the perpetual war on terror. And uh, I'm very much looking into the idea that You know, not only was 9-11 not the beginning of something, but you can look at the history of the United States uh, as the history of acts of political violence. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover used to famously boast about the fact that, you know, there was no ability to have, uh, uh, you know, conspiracy in America, that it had managed to avoid a great many of the problems which we here in what Donald Rumsfeld would no doubt have called old Europe uh, were afflicted with. Um, and my my next research projects um, very much takes issue with that and says, well, not only has is that not true, uh, but the United States was was born out of acts of political violence to a certain extent in terms of revolution uh, that uh, political violence afflicted um, the first years of the American experience. Uh, it contributed to the end of the experiment with the Articles of Confederation. It contributes to the establishment of the American Constitution that from the Washington administration onwards, uh, acts of political violence against the federal government um, have afflicted the United States. And that we can see in Clinton's time in office uh, between January uh, 1993 and January 2001, a series of incidents, um, both major and minor, both domestic and international, uh, which very much uh, test the mettle of that administration. People all too often forget that you know the first attempt to destroy the World Trade Center comes within you know the first days and weeks of the Clinton administration. That um, the great turning point in terms of Clinton's presidency and finding his voice as American president is uh, occurred uh, some 20 years ago this week with the the terrible destruction that was wrought uh, at Oklahoma City. Uh, a great act of American domestic political violence, um, and uh, you know a great many efforts to wreak havoc—havoc, havoc, sorry—upon the American homeland were thwarted uh, during the Clinton presidency. In particular, uh, during the uh, the Millennium Eve ceremonies, for example, when there were attempts to destroy the infrastructure around Manhattan and to bring uh, airlines down around uh, Los Angeles International Airport. So, you know, that's something I'm very much working on at the moment, and. Uh, that will be the next uh, the next book, hopefully, which uh, is you know very much in production at
1: this point. Well, the the book now is Clinton's Grand Strategy: U.S. Foreign Policy in a Post Cold War World, published by Bloomsbury this year. That uh, you have the chance to read it, uh, James Boyd. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Steve. It's my pleasure.